Amen. Uh, our reading this morning is from the book of James. James chapter 1, it's just after the book of Hebrews, uh, page 1213. 1213 in your pew Bibles. James chapter 1, and uh, we'll read from verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing, I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. Loving Heavenly Father, the passage that we read just a few moments ago uh, reminds us that if anyone lacks wisdom, we are to, to ask you. We believe, Father, as we open your word that we will hear wisdom, uh, but we ask that your Spirit would work in our minds to understand what we read and work in our hearts that, that the wisdom of those words and the truthfulness of those words would find a home in our hearts and that the lives that we live, we would live more wisely for our joy in Jesus and for your glory in our lives. So come, Father, and speak to your people, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we took our first look at the book of James, Faith at Work. James emphasizes that true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is faith that works. It's faith that's active. It's not just a mental assent to a number of doctrines or beliefs. It's life-changing. It will change the way that we view the world in which we live, and it will change the way that we live the lives that we have. James exhorts us to live lives consistent with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we, we just stepped into the letter of James, and uh, no more. We looked at half of the first verse of James, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we asked ourselves, who is James? Who is the person that writes this letter? He is the brother 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privileged position to grow up in the house of Mary, to see Jesus growing up, the things that James must have seen, the things that James must have heard. What an honored and privileged position he had as a brother of Jesus. Who is James? He is one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Again, what a privileged position. In the early church, it's, it's predominantly Jewish, and Jerusalem, of course, of course, is the very heart of all of that. And James is one of the very few leaders of that church. It's an honored and a privileged position that James has. Who is James? We might say that he is a man of great importance, both as a brother of Jesus and as a leader of the Jerusalem church. But who does James say James is? How does James see himself? How does James sum himself up in a sentence? He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that striking? That James would see himself first and foremost as a servant. He's got this high privileged position as a brother of Jesus, this high privileged position as a leader of the Jerusalem church. But first and foremost, as far as James is concerned, he is a servant, a doulos, usually translated a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks to us, firstly, of identity, doesn't it? Who do we see ourselves as? First and foremost, above all of our other roles and responsibilities, who are we? What makes us us? Who are you? Is your relationship to God through the Lord Jesus Christ what makes you you? What makes you who you are? It speaks to us of identity, but it also speaks to us of humility. That James, leader of the Jerusalem church, that James, the one who, who grew up in the same house as Jesus, that he would see himself, that he would introduce himself as a servant, as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems surprising until we remember that the Lord Jesus Christ said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So James is simply following in the footsteps of his Lord. That's who writes. And now we turn our attention to, to the people to whom he writes. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. The twelve tribes no longer exist in the way that they once did, as James Writes, but the 12 tribes has become a kind of shorthand way for Jews to say the people of God. And so he doesn't write to one particular person. He doesn't write to one particular 
church. He writes to the, to the people of God. Who are the people of God? They are the people who have given their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, the people who have placed their faith in Him, both Jew and Gentile. But from the way that James writes, from the, the, the phrases that he chooses to use and the role that he has within the church, it seems very likely that the people to whom he writes are predominantly Jewish Christians. They are Jews who have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, Jews who have received the Lord Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Why are they scattered among the nations? Well, they are scattered among the nations because they have been facing fierce persecution. Not fierce persecution from Rome, that will come, but this is a very early letter, one of the earliest, between uh, James and Galatians, I think, for the earliest of the New Testament letters. So persecution from Rome will come, but it's not come yet. The persecution that these Jewish believers in Jesus are facing comes, in a sense, from their own people. It comes from the Jews, from those that they grew up with, from those that they love. Imagine being told by people that you love deeply and respect greatly, that you have abandoned the ways of your forefathers and the way of your God by receiving Jesus as Lord and Christ. I remember being at a minister's conference a number of years ago, and we were all sitting down over coffee. That's the main thing that happens at ministers' conferences. We sit down over coffee and we ask each other how it's going in our respective churches. And one guy there was, was struggling. He had a really hard time. And he said, someone told me just on Sunday there that they didn't think I was cut out for pastoral ministry. They didn't think it was for me. And of course, we're all ministers, so we're all saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry, just press on, oh, it's fine, don't, don't, let it, don't let it get to you, don't let it hold you back. And he says, no, you, you don't understand, though, I really, I really love this guy, and I really respect this guy. And when he speaks, I listen. You can see how deeply hurt he had been by these comments from someone that he loved deeply and that he respected greatly. And maybe in some small way that points back to what these early believers faced as they seek to be faithful to the Christ, to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the people that they had grown up with, the people that they loved so much, their own family members, their own friends, their own peer group, people in their own synagogues, were rejecting them, they were claiming that they had abandoned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So some of them 
had to flee for their lives. And so James writes to them and addresses them as the twelve tribes. He reminds them that they have not abandoned the ways of their forefathers. They have not abandoned the way of their God. The very opposite is true. They are the new Israel. They are the people of God. They are suffering because they have been found faithful. They are scattered because of their obedience to the Lord their God. And James goes on to tackle this issue of suffering head-on. The Bible has a lot to say about suffering because it was written predominantly by people who were suffering to people who were suffering. The people of God suffer. So if you are suffering, if you are struggling, if you are in pain, if you are confused, then don't keep the pages of your Bible closed. Open and read because you will find guidance and you will find hope and you will find help in abundance in the words of God and the pages of Scripture. Suffering seems bad, doesn't it, by its very nature. We, we turn to the, the first few pages of Scripture and we, we find that the world is created by God well. It is, it is good. There is no suffering until human beings rebel against God. And then it's like the world is broken. Suffering enters in only when human beings rebel against God in Genesis chapter 3. And so this feeling that we all have when suffering and pain and, and death comes our way, this feeling that we have deep inside that this is not the way the world is meant to be. This is not the way the world was made to be. That feeling is right. Because the world is only this way because we have rebelled against God. It's not the way the world was meant to be. It's not the way the world was made to be. It is unnatural. So we come to the start of the Bible. We get to Genesis 3 before suffering and brokenness and death enter into the world. We can turn to the end of the Bible. We can look at the book of Revelation. We can turn to Revelation chapter 21. And we are shown, we are um, uh, encouraged to see that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again, that He will make all things new, that He will tease apart good and evil for all eternity. And this new world, this new heaven and earth, will be a world without suffering, without pain, and without death. We could turn to the middle of the Bible. We could turn to the Gospels and see the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could see the way that He lived His life. The King has come into the world, and obviously as the King comes into the world, the kingdom begins to break in. And as the kingdom of God begins to break in, one of the signs of the inbreaking of that kingdom is the liberation 
of suffering. Jesus reaches out to touch those who are seen as unclean, and he makes them clean. He speaks to sickness, and it's replaced by health. He speaks to death, and it is replaced by life. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Suffering is bad. We feel it deep inside, and so we make sure that we do all that we can do to avoid facing it. We have perhaps a cupboard or a drawer that has ibuprofen and uh, lemsip for the times that we are suffering headaches or colds. We we, uh, require instant pain relief. We maybe, when we're younger, we ask a girl or a boy out and they say no, so we don't ask anyone else out for another 10 years because we're frightened of facing the rejection that we faced. We scrape the car in the morning, it's all icy. We scrape it and our poor wee hand, our fingers get numb, our hand gets cold, so we go out to Poundland or to BM Bargains and buy one of those ones with a lovely kind of furry mitt we can put our hands into. We do all that we can to avoid facing suffering and pain. Suffering is bad, and pain is to be avoided at all costs. And we see that, if we have eyes to see it, we will see it everywhere in the world in which we live. So we live in a society which assumes that God does not exist. Now, if God does not exist to tell us the difference between right and wrong, how do we know what's right and what's wrong? Well, the answer that our society has come up with is that you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt other people. And that makes perfect sense if there is no God to tell us the difference between right and wrong. So I can stand here in the morning and I can say almost anything that I like about Jesus and the world will not care. But when I step into a local school and I speak about Jesus, there is an expectation that I will be careful in what I say so that I do not offend, I do not hurt the feelings of those who are there. You see that? Suffering is bad and pain is to be avoided at all costs. But then let me take you in your mind to the gym. There's a gym in Coat Bridge right next to McDonald's, which may be slightly uh, ironic, but uh, it's called DW Fitness, and Katie swims in this gym, uh, or in the pool that's joined on to the gym. And uh, sometimes I go there on the Fridays, Katie goes to, to swim, and uh, I've never been in the gym, you won't be surprised to hear, but when I buy my coffee at the kind of reception desk, I can see into the gym. And I can only describe this gym as a big room filled with instruments of torture, filled with machines that are designed to make you feel pain, filled with machines that are designed to make you feel that certain parts of your body are on fire. 
So you're thinking to yourself, well, Ross, you're right, suffering is bad and pain is to be avoided at all costs, so surely this gym will be empty. Do you think this gym is empty? Kind of Friday, early evening. This gym is, is full. It is packed full of people who have decided to spend their precious time, their precious energy, their precious money on these instruments of torture. Why is that? It's because they know that suffering is not always bad and pain is not always to be avoided. They know that a wee bit of pain will help them to be all that they can be and to do all that they can do. They know that pushing back on a bit of resistance will make them physically and actually mentally stronger and healthier. They are looking at the bigger picture, not just the pain of the moment, but the results of that pain in the longer term. And that's exactly what James encourages his readers to do, to take a step back and to focus not just on the pain of the moment, but to focus on the bigger picture, to focus on the results of pressing through that pain. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, my sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. If the aim of their lives is comfort and ease, then that makes no sense whatsoever. But if the aim of their lives is to serve God as well as they can serve God, if the aim of their lives is to be all that they can be and to do all that they can do in Christ's service, then that will make perfect sense. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And that is a consistent biblical message, isn't it? It's not just found here in James. We could look to Hebrews, Hebrews 12. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's how you should see the Lord's discipline. Not as punishment, but as training. There is no condemnation for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord does discipline us in the sense of training us to be all that we can be in Him. Produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. That's Hebrews. We could look to the writing of Paul. Paul says to Timothy, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. You see yourself as an athlete. Do you watch the Winter Olympics in Pyongyang? 
Are you like them? Are you dedicated to being the best you can be? Are you committed to running your race as well as you can run it? Even when it's hard, even when it hurts, do you see the bigger picture? As I said earlier, I've been watching the speed skating. It has been painful to watch at times. Uh, Four years of discipline and sacrifice. Four years of uh, early morning rises. Four years of those, you know, instruments of torture for, what, 40 seconds of, of racing. And it can all be gone in the blink of an eye. Our race... It's not over in 40 seconds. Our race is a marathon, not a sprint. It doesn't require breakneck speed from start to finish, but it does require endurance. It does require perseverance. It does require the ability to press on even when it's hard, to press on even when it hurts, to get up even when we have stumbled and fallen, to dust ourselves down, and to keep on going, to keep on running again and again. We are not to be, to change the metaphor slightly, we are not to be like the seed sown on rocky ground that springs up really quickly for a moment, but then dies as soon as the sun shines. Endurance is a precious gift of grace. But the means by which it comes is at least in part through suffering. You will notice that the most godly men and women that you have met, I don't know who they are, but I can say this with confidence, the most godly men and women you have met are men and women who have suffered well and suffered much. We sang just a few moments ago, I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. I want to serve the purpose of God while I am alive. I want to give my life for something that will last forever. Oh, I delight to do your will. That is the best life to live, but it's not the easiest life to live. To live that life, we need to be mature. We need to be equipped to press on even when it's hard, and even when it hurts. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. So James writes to people who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ, but it's not just persecution for your faith in Christ that counts. Trials of of many kinds. So whatever trials you are facing, they're included. They count. They can be used by God. To, to, to help you in your Christian walk. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Press on through. You may be suffering, you may be in pain, press on through. We will learn slowly how weak we are, how faithful God is, 
And as we learn to lean on Him, to trust in Him, we will grow in maturity and in perseverance. If you are suffering, it's okay, you know, to, to ask the Lord to, to deliver you from that suffering. And one day He will deliver you from that suffering. It may be today. It may be tomorrow. Or it may not be until Christ comes again to make all things new. It's okay to say with David, turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue. And we have seen God graciously answer those prayers at times in the past, the very recent past. But when instant deliverance doesn't come, and you must suffer, when instant deliverance doesn't come, and you must walk through that valley of the shadow of death, remember that God has not abandoned you, and ask Him to use that suffering to cause you to grow to grow in maturity, to grow in perseverance, to grow in love for Jesus, to grow in Christ-likeness. Last week, we remembered that being a servant, we follow in the footsteps of our Lord. This week, we remember that in suffering, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He suffered, and no servant is greater than their master. In this world, says Jesus, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He will be with us, and he understands. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who is unable to empathize with us in our suffering. He knows, he understands, he has faced it himself. He will be with us, and he understands. He will use our suffering for our good and for His glory as we are matured and strengthened in His service, and we can be assured that a day is coming when He will make all things new, and suffering will be swept aside forever. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Amen. Let's spend a moment in prayer together, and then we will stand to sing, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a sinner, a saviour. Father, we, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he humbled himself to serve. We think of that moment where he stooped to wash the feet of his followers. We thank you, Father, that we see the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see his willingness to empty himself for us most fully on the cross. We thank you for all that he was willing to suffer. He who was without sin, 
was made sin, that in him we might be the very righteousness of God. We thank you for Jesus who suffered for us. We ask that we would fix our eyes upon him, that we would not grow weary and lose heart as we seek to run the race that you have called us to run for the kingdom of Christ and for the glory of our loving Heavenly Father. So we pray, Father, in the midst of the trials that we are facing, in the midst of the troubles and the suffering and the pain that we are enduring, if it is your will for us to walk through this deep, dark valley of, of death, we, we, we pray, loving Heavenly Father, that you would lead us step by step, and that our pain would be filled with purpose. that the suffering that we are facing would be used to strengthen us in Christ's service, that we would grow in maturity, that our roots would go down deep, and that we would learn to lean and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.